Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. I left England and I guess it was 99, yeah. So, mm. been here a long time now. Mm. What 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 led you over to to the Big Apple? Um, I came here to do a graduate degree, um, but it was you know I, I came here for a summer after my second year at university in Manchester and uh, decided that I needed to live here, mm. and so the graduate degree was partially about trying to live here and partially about doing a graduate degree. So it's like, how do I get <laughs> you know? Oh, maybe if I, so I applied to NYU and I got in and, and so that was that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so I that, was intended to stay. Yeah. That, well, that sounds very similar to my experience. I, I came over, <laughs> well, I came over, I remember it was the Christmas of 98, I think. And I came okay. over, I came over to visit my, my then girlfriend, now wife. And I remember being on the train coming back from Venice and I, I we stopped in a, a railway station, Treviso, and we had you know 10 minutes to wait as we changed trains. And I remember seeing a guy like um, in an edicola in like a little kiosk selling newspapers and stuff. And I thought I could do that. I could just, I, could, <laughs> I you know, I, I thought I've just got to find something that you know, vacancy and I'll just yes. fill it. And it really doesn't matter what, what I'm doing. I don't get, I don't care. I just want to be in this country. Uh, I, yeah. I just, I felt like I'd arrived home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had the same thing. It's a strange, mm. I think in retrospect, I never felt fully at home in England. Mm. And it was a weird, yeah, it was a weird thing. I came here and it just, 
within minutes I knew, mm-hmm. you know, like this is where I want to live. This is, this feels right. Um, so, and were, it still were, does, has its ups you, and downs, but yeah. Were you still, were you studying film? Was film uh, part of your academic? Yeah, I did a cinema studies degree. Yeah, so I did a literature literature degree in undergrad and then cinema studies. Yeah. So not film, but not studying production, but studying, um, uh, you know, film academia, as it were, theory, history, all of that. So right. um, yeah, very much so. Are you are you still in that world now? Are you still in the academic side of things? Not at all. No. I when I after I graduated, I wanted to. I mean, I didn't really know where it was headed. I knew I wanted to be involved in the film world and, you know, in the kind of film appreciation world almost, you know, rather than filmmaking. But I I wanted to maybe write or, um, you know, write, program, get involved in something like that. And um, that was a tough world to get into. I did I did work and I worked for a distribution company for a little bit and did bits and bobs and then actually went completely into music for a while um, oh, right. and ran a record label and then switched switched back to this you know oh. now, now i'm in the film world kind of you know publishing film world but yeah what what sort of music i don't, don't want to go too far that way but, <laughs> but what, what sort of music a, were you were you publishing i was known as a we always called ourselves an experimental label mm-hmm. I, it's not strictly true but it was a very small label. It was me and two other guys, and then just me and one other guy. And um, yeah, small stuff, mm. small weird stuff. But um, kind of underground music in New York, and it was it was great. But it was a tough grind, as mm. I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, th- what what happened in the music industry with streaming and digital and all that made it particularly tough. And we we packed it in a little over ten years ago. Uh, was it during that period that you you? when that's finished that you started in publishing yeah roughly i or was there an overlap no there was no overlap i went through a kind of odd transitional period that i won't really go into where i did various different things but um the publishing thing really started with the that book the press gang where i was thinking back on those writers in the new york press exactly there it is <laughs> um, i i was thinking back on those writers and how i wanted to reread some of it and i couldn't find a lot of it mm. and um so then i had this idea in my mind of oh someone should do that book that idea permeated for a long time and no one did that book and and I just then started to think, maybe I should do that book. Could I do mm. that book? I, I didn't have any experience whatsoever beyond just whatever knowledge I had or anything like that. And um, so I contacted Godfrey Cheshire, Matt Zollicides, and, and Armand White and just said, look, I had this idea for this book. And I said I was going to start a small press at the time, which was not really... I mean, I I had aspirations, but I didn't, I had no way to do it yet or no understanding, but I also didn't have any qualifications to edit the book either. So (laughs) if I I approach them and say that, and and I did intend to follow through on that, obviously, um, I just didn't know how I would do it. But to cut a long story short, they all agreed. And um, I worked on that book for a long time and was gearing up to 
self-publish it and thinking, well, I'll start a small press. And I met up with my good friend, Jake Perlin, who runs the film desk, film distribution company, which started, I think, 20 years ago. And he was one of the founders of Metrograph, the Metrograph Theater in New York and was, was doing that at the time. And I said, I think I'm going to start a small press. And do you think that's a viable thing? And I, I have this New York, this New York press uh, anthology, you know. And he said, well, I got the rights to some books and I want to publish them and we're friends. And why don't we just do this together? In a strange way, doing the New York Press book directly led him to, to us doing Film Desk Publishing together, although that book ultimately came out through another publisher. So we didn't we didn't do that ourselves, but kind of doing the book and getting involved and, and getting into the book world through that, that was the spark that led me to publishing. But, but the publishing side has been a discovery as it goes along. I know it wasn't something that I knew much about going in, frankly. It was something that I had to, we both me and Jake had to just learn as we were doing it, really. Sort of fake it, fake it until you make it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then you're just doing it and you're like, oh, I guess I, I, I do know now. <laughs> happening. Um, but there, there was no kind of blueprint to follow. I mean, we, we really didn't know too much. I, I think that's, that's, I'm always interested when people talk about the imposter syndrome, and I've certainly felt it a little bit at times. But yeah. being working class and going to a university, just, I don't know, it just inured me to it. It was just like, yes. you know, I met so many stupid people who had, had, oh, yeah. had such privileged backgrounds that I just thought, no one is qualified. You know, I mean, we're, or, or we all are. <laughs> I have friends of mine who who never went to university and have this kind of aura about people that did or this this incredible respect for going mm. to university. And I'm always saying you have no idea how stupid so many of these people are. And, and at a graduate level too. I mean it was shocking, you know. So it's not what it looks like from the outside. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I work for the I'm sausage factory apply. now. <laughs> yes. And perhaps you can apply that to so many things. You know, if you start to do them, you'll realize it's not as impenetrable as you think it is. Yeah, I mean, I want to take away from that a sort of positive thing, which is, you know, don't worry about the mystique of it. You know, if you're doing it, then you are that thing. You know, it's like people, exactly. I don't really feel I'm a writer. Well, are you writing? Are you published? Yeah. Then you're a writer. You know, what else? What else no, do you I, want? I said to someone recently, well, I'm not a real publisher or something like that. And they're like, but you are publishing books. I was like, oh, I guess I am. It just doesn't. I, I think there's there's often that feeling almost like you're looking for some external validation of some kind where it's, oh, yes, you are real. You are really doing this now. And um, I don't think that exists. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I was talking to a guy who works for Variety because I was doing some work for Variety myself. And I met, I said something like, oh, I could get a scoop. And he went, wait a minute. No one's shouting stop the presses for this. You know, and I, was yes. like, I was thinking I should have a hat with press written, ticket with press written in the hat band. And yeah. it's just like, until I get that hat, I'm not really a journalist. You know? where's, yes, my, yeah. where's my hat? Kind of like, wait, am I am I actually a journalist now, or am I still just trying to be a journalist? At what point does it flip into something official? And and 
it doesn't. <laughs> no, it, it never does. And yet at the same time, I feel totally, uh, I, as I say, I, I don't really suffer from imposter syndrome as as, as this podcast has amply yes. proven. <laughs> well, good, good, as you shouldn't. So let's talk about this book because I, I, okay, I absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to pretend I've read it, read it from cover to cover because I haven't. No, yet. no, I'm sure you. Haven't. And in, in <laughs> fact, it's the sort of book that invites dipping. You know. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Um, but I, it, it really appealed to me, and it really uh, is fulfilling that promise of this sort of like time when there was a printed word and when things were being written. And now in the internet, yeah, there's great writing out there. I'm not an old fogey. I get it. But it, you know, this idea that were writers who were writing and had conversations with each other, and there was a certain permanence to to their opinions uh, that really, to me, justified um, the publishing of the book. You know, why why publish these these magazines that that you know from the nineteen from ninety one to to twenty eleven or that twenty yeah. year period? But it, it um I just loved the way these writers were having conversations with each other, even if they weren't even if they were writing totally separately and disagreeing with each other utterly. Uh, that was really great. What what was your first experience of of uh, this this magazine? Well, it's well, what it was. It wasn't quite a magazine. It was a, a weekly alternative newspaper, right. um, which was very much a thing in the U.S. at that time. It's very much a kind of pre-internet thing because what the 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 alternative weeklies did was had listings for everything that was going on in music or film or what have you. New York had two of them. One was the Village Voice, which is the more famous one, and one was the New York Press, which was the kind of scrappy upstart that came along. When I first moved to New York, when I first visited New York, I would pick it up for the listings reason, obviously, and also it was it was the kind of thing, you know, you're going to get lunch somewhere or you're going to into a doctor's office or what have you, and you just grab it on the street as something to read while you're while you're waiting. And um, it's it's interesting what you say about print journalism. I mean, it's I think the kind of writing you would find is very gone, and part of that is the engagement factor, the the fact that people really read the stuff. I mean, I don't know, to speak to my speak for myself, I obviously read stuff online, but a lot of stuff is very um my eyes glaze over at a certain point if it's too long and I'm looking at a screen and 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 I think this is people wrote their weekly columns and people read them every week and they had a, a devoted readership and it's the writers were getting paid, which I think is a is a pretty stark difference with the internet when I hear about what writers get paid now it's frankly shocking I think mm. I'm sure Godfrey Matt and Armand would have said a similar thing about what they were getting paid back then but I can guarantee it was a lot more than what you would get now you know and I think what that created was a climate where they had the time to think about their weekly columns to to really think about what am I going to write about, what am I going to say, and to to do it and devote real time to it. And the other thing you 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 touched upon is the way they were interacting with each other, which is one of my was one of my real memories from the paper from reading it was that one week one of them would review a film and the next week the other one would directly attack that review, <laughs> and. 
it, I just love this feeling of, of differing opinions and critics interacting with each other in one publication, you know? I, I think they would often fight over who got to review what film and and if someone didn't get to review the film they wanted to, they'd often wind up kind of reviewing it anyway within the the context of the review they were supposed to be writing. And um, but I think that level of disagreement was really fascinating. And I and I, the New York press was very like that in general, and that it was its owner was a was a right-wing guy, its editor was a left-wing guy, and they published stuff that really ran the gamut ac- across the spectrum. And there was no kind of party line to the paper. And I, I remember that being very confusing when I first picked it up. I was like, wait a minute, what what is this? <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that's very, I think it was unusual then. I think it's almost unsought of now. And I, I think that manifested in the in the film section, even. You know, you had three very different, very different writers coming from very different perspectives. And I just I found that very rich week after week to to read that to read that kind of variety and and also I enjoyed the attacks they made on each other and the arguments and the, the opinionatedness of it all. So it just felt like a very vibrant climate of of criticism in one paper, you know. Absolutely, I, I, and it's it's. I mean, as you say, I would be used to Pauline Kael in the New Yorker attacking. Um, oh, who's the guy <laughs> with the the comical Sarah. name? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. But there was another one, Bosley, somebody from oh, Bosley Crowther, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who sounds like half wizard, half <laughs> yes, PG, exactly. PG Woodhouse character. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. um, uh, or post Stephen uh, Kaya de Cinema, you know, going at it. Yes. But actually, having that argument in one venue is is really fascinating. Who's, yes. your, who's your favorite? <laughs> right. I would say, <laughs> but, um, but no, it was it was it was very it was very vibrant, and I think it kept them on their toes as well because. I mean, I'm I'm speculating here, but I, I think it probably created an environment where they had to kind of prove themselves to each other, or they were they were trying to one up each other. It was competitive, clearly. I just think that's very healthy. Um, I think you know if you go back in time, and I think he used to get kind of intellectuals sitting around tables in cafes and bars, like violently arguing with each other and having very different opinions. And they, I I think that kind of comfort with difference of opinion is something that culturally has changed a lot. And I think even something as kind of benign as film criticism, I think you you get these kind of, people get very upset when someone criticizes something they like, or, oh my God, this critic's an idiot. He didn't like that film. I'm, I'm always drawn to read critics that don't have my opinion. I find that the most interesting thing or, uh, a critic that I think is a is a good, good, interesting writer doing maybe writing a book on a filmmaker that I'm on the fence about. I find that interesting. Like I'm, I'm looking to, not really looking to, to bolster my own opinions. I'm looking to challenge them. So, I think that was that was always a thing with the New York Press. I mean, partially because they were so opinionated, and I think that was, I mean, with someone like Carmen White. Who's who's become somewhat infamous of a, a name in film criticism for many, but he's 
he, you know, he's seen as something of a troll who just goes against the mainstream opinion, and he does go against the mainstream opinion. But I think people read it as very disingenuous, and I don't think it is disingenuous. And I think it's also a legitimate critical stance to say, I'm gonna my my kind of role as a critic personally is to challenge orthodoxies to go against what I see as a, as general trends that I don't like. And whether you agree with that or not, I do think it's a valid stance. I think someone like Pauline Kael, to some extent, was always doing that. Kind of writing to kick against the person she imagined was disagreeing with what she was saying, you know. Well, Pauline Kael always makes me feel like she's uh, she's criticizing the audience more than she's criticizing the film. She's always like, you know, people watching yes. this film are, are thinking this, but they really should be thinking that. Or, you know, you yeah. like this because you're idiots. You know? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, Armand White is someone I I definitely discovered as as you, you've characterized him as much more you know, almost sort of quoted with people going, God, this guy drives me nuts. But that's what's so interesting about going to this book and reading back on these things, and especially the conversations between the three of them, that they have these, these not dialogues, but trialogues, I guess, uh, where yeah. they're, um, they, they're and, and he's making really good points, and he's making them really well. And I might disagree with him on the points, but I find I have to, I have to work out why I think what I think. I can't just think it. Yeah. And that is that to me is the essence of good argument. Oh, absolutely. And I think he's I don't think anyone could argue that he's not qualified, as it were, um, as a critic. He knows his stuff, he's he's chaired the New York Film Critics Circle twice. He's a real critic. He know you know, he knows what he's talking about. And I think People's discomfort sometimes with some of the things he's saying or his political positions mean that they want to discount that. And I just think it's so much more interesting to have people from coming from all kinds of perspectives, as long as they are qualified, good critics, you know, who know what they're talking about when it comes to film. It's so much more interesting if you have that that plurality of voices. So it doesn't mean I, I love everything he writes or I agree with everything he writes, but I don't think there's a critic out there that I could say that about. And and that's not the point of criticism. Right, absolutely. And I disagree with Matt and uh and Godfrey on on, you know, yes, exactly. Oh no, no, absolutely. Not, yeah. not, uh, you know, I'm not picking on Armand as a as a particular example of that. I certainly feel yeah. that my sort of political outlook probably aligns closer to Matt's and aligns closer to Godfrey's. But right. you know, that that doesn't necessarily you know, um, chime with my film views. You know, I mean, I, I perhaps I'm no. more generous in one direction and less generous in another. So, uh, when you approach these guys, was, uh, did you already know them, or, or were you approaching them basically as a reader who wanted to uh, to, to become a publisher? No, I didn't know them at all. Um, I managed to get their email addresses through asking around. Um, and and approached them, and you know Godfrey was very receptive immediately. He responded and said, "This is a great idea. Let's meet." I was just talking to Matt about someone should do this, you know. And Matt and Armand were pretty receptive too, but were I think probably understandably a little more 
wary of like, well, who is this guy and is he really going to do this kind of right. thing? And, um, but it, it took a little bit of time. Um, and at a certain point, they all agreed and just said, yeah, go for it. And, and so I then went into the process of finding all of this stuff. I couldn't quite find all of it. There is no mm. real New York Press archive. So I, I think I probably collected 80 to 90% of everything the three of them had written for the paper. And then just went through the process of reading it all and selecting what to put into the book. And, and all three were, were great throughout the whole process, really helpful, gave me their feedback of what they would like to see in the book. You know, I made it clear at the beginning it was going to be my choice, but I was really interested in what they thought should be in there or, or shouldn't be in there. And then I just went through the went to the process of sequencing it. One thing Matt said early on is he said it needs to be pretty equal word count between all three of us. They're, they're still competitive, you know. So and, but I but I also knew that it had to be sequenced in such a way that there wasn't because it's chronological, there wasn't just a huge block of one writer. So I had to I had to have an equal word count, but also have it kind of vacillate back and forth between the different writers to create that feeling of the dialogue. And um, so it was, it was a bit of a mission coming up with a final sequence. Um, and they, they were great with that. And um, yeah, it was a real joy. It was a real joy to work on and, and very easy, really. It's a shame because it came out of COVID and we, we were planning on doing screenings and stuff with the three of them, which I thought would be a lot of fun to get the three of them up there. And um, and it just didn't happen because of COVID. Maybe it still should happen. But, yeah. it, it would be good. Yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, that would definitely be something to see. I, th I, yeah. I, I just I'd worry about fist fights maybe breaking yes. out or something. Or, or they, even... they are friends, though. They are friends. So. But, I, I mean, that's, that's what... Um, what you said earlier about something as benign as film criticism, I mean, you know, I mean, you obviously don't spend much time on Twitter. I immediately, yes, yeah, no. I, I immediately thought. I actually don't spend any time on Twitter. I've never, I've never used it. So, um, so I really don't. Yeah, well yes, done. Because because that 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 place is toxic. With with, I mean, you you can carve yes. it and make it into something. You have to make a concerted effort to make it into something constructive. But its default position is the algorithm is toxic. It's not. I tried joining it once. I've never really. I don't use social media at all. Actually, just I just don't enjoy it. I don't really get it. Um, I did join Twitter once because so I I got this idea of oh it could be a really good news feed as it were. Like if I follow things I'm interested in, I'll find out about stuff I'm interested in. And I did join it, and I just couldn't understand really how to read the tweets it just confused me immediately and i never liked it again so yeah i haven't gone in there the importance of it or otherwise could be can be greatly overstated sometimes uh i don't you know most people who are going to the cinema and everything yeah. aren't necessarily discussing it on twitter and i think going back a little bit as well to the general internet thing did you there was an episode of fraser once which was you know, like every episode of Frasier, brilliant. And uh, right. it, it had a bed, it was a bedroom fast structure. And for some reason, they kept 
they all kept joining in a hotel bathroom in a like in the bathroom of this hotel room they for some reason they'd have food they had a cart of food in there as well and and there was a running joke that whenever somebody new turned up in the bathroom and was hiding in the bathroom from whoever they were hiding from somebody would say oh, do you want a sandwich or something and they'd go food in the bathroom as a, as like it's <laughs> you, you, those are two things that you know as a psychologist you never have yes. food in a bathroom it's too it's the wrong thing i think that about uh, the internet in the sense that now we've got all this stuff in one venue it's like we've got a vending machine for food in the bathroom and it's like <laughs> I, I, it, I love reading stuff on the internet i love reading stuff and all the rest of it but i go to the internet to work i go to the internet to communicate with my friends to communicate with my family to do loads to do zoom calls to do podcasts to do loads of right. things and sometimes it feels like I'm eating in the bathroom, and I, I, and, and I need to read stuff via physical, yes, books and magazines. I need to, I, I spend more valuable attention on them. Yeah, yeah I can't, I can't really focus on like. I mean, I, yeah. I'm very old fashioned in that way, and and I, you know, when I I watch movies, I watch them on a TV, not on a computer. You know, I'm, I'm. <laughs> I'm very when I listen to music, it's a, it's a stereo. It's I I that thing with the computer where it does everything. It means everything is interrupting whatever you're engaged in, and it's exactly it's a constantly fractured activity, which which just stresses me out, frankly. Um, so uh, it's it's not for me really. But obviously, there is stuff I read online, and obviously, it's a great tool in so many ways. And my business wouldn't. Wouldn't really be able to function without it, Frank. But but I mean, when uh, you, you uh, the books that you sent me very kindly, um, the uh, I just love the physicalness of them. I love the look of them, oh, the feel you. of them. I love the uh, the weight of them in my hand, it, and 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 most of all, obviously, I love reading them. You know? yes, yes. But, but I'm reading them with much more attention. And as you say, you know the. the the phone, the iPad, the 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 computer. It's it's you're always aware of all the other things you should be doing while you're there. You know. Yes. Well, I, I think um, you know a big thing when me and Jake first talked about this uh, about publishing books. You know, we were. I think we both had this feeling that there was a time in the sixties and seventies, and and really through the eighties and nineties, but that was the heyday where big publishing houses were publishing books on film. You know, that's when mm. Pauline Kell had her collections coming out, but you had much more niche stuff that was coming out in beautiful editions and and being really pitched at a, a mass audience. And I, I think now a lot of film book publishing is university presses. You do get the more mainstream publications, but there's not that many of them. You know, they, they tend to be more accessible things. And I think we we wanted to do something that was not academic like a university press, not kind of existing in that. I mean, the university presses, the books are really expensive and it's it's kind of its own weird world I don't quite understand. Mm. And it is more geared towards academia, even if the books themselves aren't always academic, you know. And I think we wanted something that was kind of pitched at a mass audience, not to say our books are particularly mainstream in, in their, their appeal, but, and also 
a big focus on them being beautiful objects and well made and given that care and attention. So very, very quickly we said we didn't want to do prints on demand. Um, we wanted these to be prop properly made, designed books, which which obviously has it has its pitfalls, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, it's, it's much more expensive and it's, it's a harder thing to pull off. But I think it was just for us incredibly important that they were beautiful objects. And that's because we we both fetishize books. So you're talking to someone who's got an absolute addiction at the moment, which is killing <laughs> is killing my bank account. To I'm currently addicted to uh, Library of America hardbacks. Oh yes, I, yeah, I know them well. <laughs> I, good God, they're so beautiful. I love those books so much. Thin yes. paper, the smell, the little yes. uh, bookmark. The ribbon bookmark. Yeah. Exactly, it's perfect. Um, so you said Jake had some um, titles that he already had the rights to uh, before you yes. started. Uh, so what were the first titles that you um, that you said about publishing? Well, he'd done, he'd done, really, before my time, he'd done two little books, um, which was, he did a book of Lillian Ross from The New Yorkers. One book was her writing on Truffaut, and one was her writing on John Huston. So he'd already done those before me, and then I had, a, I had acquired the rights to film as a subversive art, which was the, the kind of top of my list, book reissue that I wanted to do. And it turned out it was top of his list too. That was something we talked about. Um, and he had the rights to, we did a little book, a Pasolini in New York book, which is an interview with Pasolini and Duras Godard dialogues, the interview book of Marguerite Duras and Jean-Luc Godard. So he had the rights to those two books and he was just very busy at the time he said like i've got these i've had the rights to these and we gotta get it going and i said well i got films of subversive art and so we we pulled our resources and took it from there so yeah that was i think that he'd oh he'd done one other book which was a philippe gorel book which i was slightly involved in um and the, those early, those the first three books, the Truffaut, Houston, and Philip Grell books are all out of print, and the the Pasolini one is now out of print too. I th or there's a couple of copies left, maybe. But but yeah, I think the Film as a Subversive Art was our biggest book, and I think the book that really kind of got us out the door. Um, it, it happened to coincide with a citywide celebration of Amos Vogel, the author. Um, 
right when the book came out, which was wonderful. Um, it was his centenary. So every repertory venue in the city did a program in tribute to him. And so it was just, that was a wonderful thing to see. And it just really pushed the book out there and, and kind of got us really started. I mean, the other books have been mostly selling online and, and we'd put them in a few stores. And then Duras Godard had come out during COVID, so it was limited mm. how much how much attention it got. I remember there was there's a, there's a frequent sort of obviously because I'm doing writers on film and uh, you know I do boost this via Twitter um, that we do every now and again there'll be a, a thread of people suggesting film books and Vogel's uh, film as, as subversive art is is often cited as as you know that's that's one of the top titles that everybody yeah. comes back to it's it's it has i mean i i always loved it i knew it had a, a huge fan base but it really does have a huge fan base and i i discovered that from redoing it i i had this experience where i was in a bookstore in upstate new york um it's a book and record store and i i you know, chat to the guys sometimes in there. And then he said, what do you do anyway? Mm. And I said, I would publish books on film. And he said, well, have you done a new edition of films of subversive art? And I thought he was asking me because he knew there was a new edition of films of subversive art, which he didn't. So when I said yes, he like fell off his chair and said, that's my favorite book ever. I can't believe it. I've been waiting years. And I've I've had a lot of experiences like that where people... Uh, basically saying this is my favorite book i've been waiting for this forever you know thank you so much so it's been really gratifying to get that out there well what do you uh, think is the is the enduring appeal of that book i don't i i think i mean i think it has something which which speaks to again a slightly forgotten era of, of film books or, or the role film books played which is you know back in the day you couldn't just watch these things at home so there was that element of flipping through books and looking at pictures and kind of imagining the films you were you were reading about. And obviously, films of subversive art deals with films that you still can't see, mostly because they're so obscure and you certainly couldn't then. But I, I think it speaks to that that almost archaeological interest. You know, it's it's like reading about things you don't know about, learning about things. It's it's something of an encyclopedia in a, in, a, in its own way. Um, it's also got brilliant writing in it, and it's 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 just it's a fascinating, unique, idiosyncratic book um, in so many ways. It's it's kind of endless what it yields. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It and it just makes you feel so. It just makes you feel so much cleverer. I think I I, I love engaging. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. <laughs> I, I remember a, a book, um, The Cinema of Loneliness, which I got out of yes. Borough Library and seeing, reading, there's a there's quite a bit about Peckinpah in there and, and there's a, a few photographs of like the end of the Wild Bunch and there's, you know, Pike with the Gatling gun in the air and bloodstains on the wall. Yes. And this was, this must have been years before I saw the Wild Bunch. And that image just stayed, what happened to create that? And of course, yes. Yeah. You read you read the description and your ballet of slow motion and it's just like, what does that look like? I I, I didn't see a clip of it. I didn't see anything until I, I don't know when I saw the film, but it was uh, 
it must have been on TV at some point and I watched it and was blown away. But but I can't help but think that it was that picture that really seeded the, you know, the need to see Peggy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember I would read books on filmmakers. I mean, obviously, I mean, we grew up in the VHS era, so things were seeable to a point, but it was still pretty limited. Just limited what was even available, let alone you having access to it, you know. And but I would pour over these books about filmmakers and look at these stills and read the descriptions and just yeah, just imagine them. Um, and I think that's something that's almost a role of film books that it doesn't need to be filled in quite the same way anymore. Also, the this encyclopedic element, or the you know, you used to read director books and they would always have filmographies in the back and things like that. And people don't really do that anymore because you can just go online and go to IMDb or, or what have you and look it up. But I, I do like it when that's all in book form. But I, I, I think they don't need to fill they don't need to do that in the same way anymore, film books. We can see the we can see the films much easier. We can get all the kind of facts and the information and that's that's gone a bit, but film is a subversive art. You can't really get that information anywhere else. Most of it, those films are so unknown um, and so hard to see as well. So, yeah, and I mean, I think sometimes there's a limit. I'm always a bit surprised by the limits of the internet. In that, you'll Google something and it'll say, you know, a million odd hits, but after page two, there's really nothing worth looking at, and it's you know, it's <laughs> you're not getting anything else. You're just getting repetitions of the same stuff. You know, so to go deeper you you do have to kind of read the book you know you have to read you go to the footnotes and get (laughs) exactly um so um your uh this endeavor you know um uh that you survived covid okay yeah we didn't i mean we weren't that active before covid so right and we we didn't have an office or anything like that i took an office in the first summer of COVID, but yeah, it didn't it didn't affect us too much. Um, I think it affected us. Obviously, bookstores were closed, um, so it affected us in terms of how many books we could get out to stores. But our overhead was very low then. I mean, it, that that does grow as the operation grows and as we become bigger and need more storage and things like that. It, it's there's more pressures on the business, but we tried to keep it very light in terms of what our overhead is and what what the demands are in that way. Um, and we we distribute all the books ourselves, which has its pluses and minuses, of course. But um, so we, we we operate pretty independently, really. I think something like COVID is much more damaging to a bigger operation that is more tied to other other operations as it were you know i think Mm. i think we were able to kind of continue as normal really so i'm really interested as well how like because matt's got his sort of online bookstore as well and he's you know there's uh, i'm really interested in this sort of thing of uh sort of going across sectors and sort of you know people are writing podcasting doing uh, publishing and and then the layers are uh, are not impermeable you can you can you know you can mix it up a bit yes yeah well it's it's i mean jake is jake my partner's very like that i mean he's Mm. 
film distribution company. He's just launched a, a Blu-ray label for Film Desk and um, does programming and produces films. And so it is it is very permeable like that. And and I've I still I do work on books that we don't publish per se that I work as an editor on or have other independent projects. And then of course we also sell used books on our website. Mm. So we have a kind of used film book store as well, which is not necessarily the most lucrative thing, but I think just born out of the fact that me and Jake love film books. I love looking for film books and, <laughs> and I don't have room for them myself. So it's it's that's really just a passion of wanting to collect interesting books and get them out to people, you know, and, and kind of foster, I guess, a kind of a, a community um of, of people that are interested in writing about film that like books that are, so i think it's about that too yeah absolutely and i i mean i think it is something that that's where sort of culture comes from i you know it sounds a bit grand but it, it's people get encouraged you know if, if you suddenly have a venue if you suddenly have somewhere to discuss things if you suddenly have like-minded people suddenly you know i mean i'm reading more film books than i've ever read before <laughs> every week i've got another one to read bloody hell <laughs> i know you must be you must be snowed under them, with them yeah uh, i love it when i when somebody says uh they'll come on the podcast who whose book i've already read that's like oh that's a week yeah. off <laughs> no homework whatsoever yeah no i think it's well i think that you know the, the good thing about the internet and certainly from the perspective of film desks is I think the ability to just start publishing books didn't used to exist. Right. It wasn't it would have been possible to create a website and have a direct access to buyers and just do it, basically. And I, I think kind of what you're talking about in terms of people with fingers in different different uh endeavors and different ideas, I think that's I think th this is what's great about the internet. Obviously, you can reach people directly. They, there's much less of a need to. I guess it's that gatekeepers idea. Mm. There aren't. You don't kind of need the approval. You can just start to do it. I think there's a downside to the lack of gatekeepers too. But, um, but I think it's um, there's definitely an upside, you know. And so, me and Jake could just say, let's publish books and let's do this. And we did it. And yeah. I God knows how we would have done that in the eighties. Right. I mean, I don't I don't how I don't know how you would do that. Um so I think it does give people the ability to say, Oh, you know what, we're gonna start selling used film books too, or, or like you say with Matt's store, he he just started doing that and he's also a critic, and then I know he's he's now publishing some books too. So it's it's much it's fluid in that way you can just so now he's a competitor he is kind of a competitor yeah. i guess he you sells, have, he always you've got to have the there will be the will be blood you have to have the there yes. will be blood conversation you're my yes. competitor <laughs> i'll drink your milkshake <laughs> he i guess he i guess he is that he's um although he's also a supporter because he sells our books so um I wouldn't define him quite as a competitor. I think we have slightly, we have a lot of crossover, and then we also reach slightly different places. Um, but his 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 store is fantastic, and as I understand it, is going really well. 
Um, and I think, you know, I mean, me, me and Jake used to talk, he, he once said his dream was to have a, a physical film bookstore. Um, there used to be stores like that, but they, I don't think they really exist anymore except for at the BFI or, or Metrograph does have one, but, but it's nice to be able to do it online. And I, th I think Matt and, and Film Desk are the only two that I know of that specialize in, in film books. So, Yeah, I, to tell you the truth, uh, on sort of, I only knew Matt via Twitter and, and whatnot, and I was under the misapprehension that he had an actual physical store. So right. I, I was because it just sounded like that. It sounded like because he, he'd say, "Oh, look at all these we've got on this shelf," and I was like, "Oh, oh, uh, you know, I'd love to go into that store and see a section." <laughs> you know, I think I even suggested he came on the hundredth episode of the podcast, and I even suggested to him, "Oh, you could have a shelf with writers on film," and he was yeah. like, uh, "I think he was nonplussed at that suggestion." You know, by the window. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay. Um, yeah, it's like there is no shelf. <laughs> there is no window. I think it's I think it's become quite a big operation. I think he kind of runs it out of his garage, but I but I think it's getting a, to be a bigger and bigger operation for him, which is fantastic. But he the thing he does that that we don't really do is he he stocks new film books. When something new right. comes out, he orders you know a, a certain amount of them and sells it and. We we've done that a little bit, but it's 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 almost accidental. It's someone we know us as if if we want to sell a new book, or it does happen, but we we don't seek that out. It's we're not we're not robust in operation at all <laughs> to to handle that. But um, it's great that he does that. So you were saying that you a lot of your uh, first books are, are now um, are, are they already sold out? Quite a few of these these titles that you you've published. Yes, the, well, the, those two Lillian Ross books sold out. The, the Truffaut mm. one did get reprinted, and I think at a certain point our resources are limited, and we just felt let's let this one go and move on to another. Yeah, exactly. We've got to focus on new new books. Um, we've had a similar... I mean, the Pasolini New York one, we reprinted it two times. There's been three printings, and we may reprint it, but it's it's a little... It's, it's a, this little, very cheap paperback, and um, it's things have got a little complicated. You know, printing costs have gone up a lot recently. Right. And, the viability of doing it at that price has got a little difficult. So we're looking at that. We may bring that back into print, but the, yeah, we, we just felt we had to focus on newer projects. So what are the new projects that you're, that you're, that you're doing at the moment? Like as in the upcoming projects? Well, yeah. Also sort of stuff that's available that people can get right now. Oh, right. Well, the, we, we, we put out earlier this year, we did a new translation of Jean Cocteau's uh, Diary of a Film, which is his his Diary of the Making of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I, I, I read the copy you sent me. It's a beautiful book as well. So, so Yeah, good. It's, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And that was uh, that was the second book that me and Jake talked about doing. Mm. You know, we talked about films. As, he had the rights to some. We, I had films as a subversive art, and that, well, that was the first book we talked about seeking out. Um, we both really wanted to do it, 
and it's it's a beautiful book and it it had a bit of a complicated road because there's an existing translation from a British poet called Ronald Duncan from the 50s mm. and I got the rights to that and so we thought great we're gonna we're gonna move ahead with this and we sent it to a translator we work with I had all the text prepared and we just said let's just send it to him and he can check it and maybe update it a little because it was a feeling it felt a little dated and he got back to us and he said this translation is not really a translation it's it's more of an, a free interpretation of, of of the diary. The guy has kind of almost rewritten the diary in his voice or, or what have you. So we decided at that point we really had to do a, a brand new translation. So it's never really come out in a proper translation in, in the English language. So I'm really happy and proud that we that we did that and got it out. Because it's it's such a beautiful book and it's it's so fascinating to read, you know, to get so much insight into the process of filmmaking from someone like Jean Cocteau at the, during that era, mm. you know, and how hands-on he was in the production. There's also a lot about his medical problems during the shoot. I don't know, I don't know what was happening to him, but um, uh, but it was it's. Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful book. So that came out in January. Um, we also did a new edition of Ashley Clark's um, kind of extended essay on Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Um, so we put that out towards the end of last year. Um, he'd done that several years ago for, for a small press that went out of business. So that had been out of print for a while. So yeah, those are those have been our two most recent books. You know, we, we always have a lot of things we're working on and there's always a lot of delays. Thing, everything just takes longer than you think. That thing I always used to look at kind of publishers or books I'm excited about and they say it's coming on this date and then it's constantly getting delayed and they get frustrated and and now I understand why that happens. It's It just happens. You know, things take a while to pull together. But, um, but we do have a number of things that we're working on, probably none that I should really talk about yet because they're not quite there, but um, right. but we do have a number of things we're working on that I'm really excited about. And there's, there's always a long list of things we would like to get back into print and things we'd like to translate. I mean, I think mm. that's a real source of, of books is there's a huge amount of fantastic film books that are out of print and mm. there's a huge amount of fantastic film books that are not in the English language. Or I assume they're fantastic. I haven't read them, but they sound <laughs> great. And um and I and I want to read them. And that's sometimes a motivation. You know, the with the Duras Goddard book, Jake acquired the rights, but he hadn't read it. But he figured it had to be good. Yeah. This is gonna be good. There's no way. Um and I think the same with the, the Pasolini New York book. You know, the we neither of us speak a foreign language, so it's a bit of a leap of faith. But every t when I went, I was in Paris probably five, six years ago in a in a bookstore, just looking at all these incredible film books that I wanted to read but couldn't. Mm. And mm. so I think there's a real wealth out there of material that just hasn't made it over. And especially so. there seems to be a real crossover between quite a lot of 
filmmakers who are themselves literary. I mean, Pasolini's a novelist and a poet, yeah. um, you know, Cocteau, obviously. Uh, I was even watching uh, Orson Welles' birthday yesterday, the day before we recorded re- recording this, and there was an interview with him, and he just came out with such a lucid... I mean, I know it's Orson Welles, so what else do you expect? But there was <laughs> yes. such lucidity and such, yeah. you know, and, and I just sort of think this is the this sort of culture this literate culture of the word is to be preserved and cherished and what about um would you be looking or wanting to sort of like commission new writing as as part of your uh yes we would we would i mean there was a point there was a point early on where i think we we felt you know, much as I obviously am a huge fan of film criticism because I did this New York Press book and I recently did a, a book we distributed but didn't publish with, with Godfrey Cheshire of his writing on Iranian cinema. And yeah, excellent book. Uh, but but we but we I think we felt a bit we wanted to do books that were slightly less of the moment, you know, director books and filmmaker books, but that that's not that's not an official line really we we have actually approached some people and we have you know i know word is out on this already but uh we approached nick pinkerton the critic to do a book on jean astache mm. um that he's working on and so yes we do we do do that and we would i think like to do a lot more of that but again it's it's always a bit of a it's just how much time we have, how much money we have, and what we can really handle. Well, that's the right. That's the real gatekeeper. I mean, we we talk about there's no gatekeepers and all the rest of it, but there yeah. are. It's it's mortality. It's it's the fact that there's yes. only <laughs> so much time in our existence, and sure. so you don't want to waste your time. You know reading the second or third or fourth best version of something. You want to read the best. Yes. You want to read the you know. No, absolutely. And I, I think I do. I mean, I do. I like the idea a lot of of, of commissioning books from from active writers, because I think it, to, to speak to that point that I was saying earlier about a, a lack of film books in the culture that are beautiful objects and that are that are pitched in a more in a less academic context. I want to I want to create that with writers you know I want to give writers the opportunity to create those books new rather than just taking existing books from the past and that that came out in that context already and getting them out there again so I think it's I think it's an important thing and there is there is a little bit of that happening from other people there's there's Fireflies Press you you know you did they did the the magazine and they've started doing books too and um I also saw that another gaze is starting to publish books, so it's really it's it's really encouraging. It's nice to see that that that, that is starting to happen more, and that there's more small presses taking on film books. I, I think this is a wave. I mean, I think movie uh, doing a print only publication, and the yes, idea are, that yes. you know a streamer is actually engaging in a non digital format is know, yes, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, or you know, or for I mean, look, what was it last year was the most the most vinyl records ever sold in history. Yeah, you know, I mean, okay, partly that's a statistical trick just because there are more people than there ever have been in history. So, so remarkable, gonna... uh, you know, if you yeah. think about when that was the only medium. Yeah, 
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to ask you a, a final question, which uh, which is going to be a, a tricky one, because um, I want you to to recommend a film book. <laughs> and I'm not sure how you're going to play this, but I'm not going to say anything. Uh, you're... Well, I'm not going to recommend one of mine. <laughs> but, that, was, uh, that was the obvious answer. Yes, yes. Obvious. Much as I'd like to, because yeah. I wouldn't be publishing them if I... Uh, because, I mean, there's got there's so many I could mention. Obviously, um, I'm I'm obsessed with this stuff. So uh, I'm looking right now. Right now, I'm reading um, Hawks on Hawks. Oh wow, Joseph McBride, so, guest yeah, guest okay. of the show. You had that recently, right? Yeah, he's uh, coming back as well. Oh great! So I, I just started reading that, which is which is fantastic. Um, so I I love those director interview books. I wish there was more of them now. I, I miss those favor and favor books. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't I mean, we that, that whole film line was formative for me. Yeah. It, the Hawks on Hawks seems great. I, I guess I'll throw in one other, which is just one of my favorite books of any kind, which is Bresson's Notes on Cinematography, which is just such a strange, beautiful book. Um, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. That's that's really good. Yeah, God. I mean, t going back to what we were saying earlier about the sort of culture of people and how the industry used to be and everything. I mean, I remember at university, I was always one of those people where if I went to someone's flat, I'd immediately, you know, go through the record collection and go through the and look at the bookshelves and everybody had a Scorsese on Scorsese. Everybody yeah. had a Tarantino script, you know, Coen Brothers yeah. collected screenplays. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, you're a cinephile. It was like, Everybody had that, you know. It was like yeah. then in the art of motorcycle maintenance, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and Scorsese on Scorsese. It was like <laughs> absolutely. No, I'm the kind of guy that when they, when I watch a film or an interview with someone on on screen, and there's a bookshelf in the background, I'm looking at the bookshelf and trying to decipher <laughs> the books. And, um, as you say, if I go to someone's house, I can't not look at the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. So, Eyes but, wide shut. The scene where he's in the prostitute's bedroom, and it, there's a huge copy of sociology. <laughs> that I'm yes. thinking, I even know the writer of that book. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I'm always kind of ashamed, or, or something that I can I can recognize the out of focus books just by the the look of the spine, the kind of blurry colors on the spine. Yeah. Um, so. That's amazing. That's oh well. I mean, I, I found a fellow sufferer. <laughs> yes. Whatever disease this is, yes. we are afflicted. Absolutely. Listen, it's been wonderful talking to you, Jim. And uh, thanks, John. You know, next, next, uh, when you have some, perhaps some more news on the, on a, like a new raft of things coming out, we could talk again. Yeah, great, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.